0: Yeah, so I I was in California this week, and uh, I come back to a house without power since Thursday, came on this morning, so my girls were able to hole up in my folks' house, so that was good, and I get to clean up a bunch of tree limbs and acorns scattered all throughout my yard, but hey, we're okay, we're okay. So as I told you, I was in California this week, so I want to start tonight with a thank you. And a confession, okay? So first, the thank you. I want to say thank you, Providence Community Church. Thank you, Pastor Mark, who is a pastor that kicked me out to California when when I came almost two years ago and told me that I need to do this thing called the journey in Southern California, and I need to just experience this season with a community of people from all over. In my generation, they call them generations, we had a missionary from China, we had some Nebraskans, and then I was able to go through it with uh, a bunch of Californians. That's always exciting. Even James, who is a pastor here uh, in the early days of Providence. I also got to go through this experience with Ramon. So I want to say thank you, church, because you sent me there, okay? And I cannot overemphasize how much of a tremendous blessing the journey is for my spiritual formation, and, and I hope that formation that spills out just into how I love and lead you all and care for you all. So I, I'm so grateful for that, okay Because this church values. So many things that many churches that function maybe more like businesses or massive organizations. This church values things like prayer and abiding with Jesus and bearing witness and loving one another. These are all the things that the journey is about. So thank you, okay? Thank you for letting me be in Southern California while a storm blows through and Ebola comes to Dallas. So thank you for that. We need to pray for that family and that mess of Ebola. My goodness, Lord. Um... So that was the thanks. Thank you, church, for this. I know it was a good thing in Pastor Drew's life also, so thank you for that. Also, I told you I was going to tell you a confession, okay? So as I tell you a confession, I'd like for you to grab your Bibles, if you have a Bible, and turn to, guess what? Jonah. Still in Jonah. Would you turn to Jonah real quick? We're going to talk about uh, some things tonight in Jonah, But I want to tell you a confession about why I thought I wanted to preach Jonah, maybe seven weeks ago or more, why I wanted to preach Jonah was because I thought that God was maybe calling us to a season where um, maybe we can just focus a little bit on mission and God's mission and how we can be on mission together. For the Lord, with the Lord, on his mission, okay? So I wanted to preach Jonah because I thought that I would get up here and basically, if I'm honest with you, micromanage our church into mission, okay? Which, number one, I'm not capable of, and number two, is a very, very bad idea. So in this process, and the journey helped me, the journey gives us tools to do some planning processes where we don't say, hey, what's Adam's idea? But God, what is your idea? God, what is your desire? And this, I think, is revolutionary, okay? It sounds simple, but often don't we always want to just do our thing, our thing, and say, hey, God, oh, thanks. I'm already kind of five steps down the road, but would you come and bless whatever I'm up to and let's go? And so what happened is, before we even preached, before I even started preaching, I sat down and said, well, God, what do you want to do? Because I think I want to do Jonah, but what do you want to do? And rather than get up here and just say, we all need to be like Jonah's, and we all need to go and love our enemies, and we all need to go and uh, be called, we all need to discern, you know, what is our passion and how God has wired us, we all need to discern who are the people that God has surrounded us with, and then what is our purpose in that intersection, right? The cards that are out there. So, so rather than trying to just micromanage and, and do all this, what happened in this season is that's not the way to do it. And I told you this the first week. The way to do it is rather just to catch a vision of the merciful God on mission. So what happens then is we don't go like Jonah marched 500 miles to Nineveh on our own, okay? Okay? We don't go because we thought it was a good idea to go. We go because, like I said last week, it originates and begins. Mission originates, begins, and is empowered always through God. So we don't go, we're we're joining is what we're doing, okay? And I hope that this has become evident every week we've been in Jonah. Because what happens when mission originates with us, when we decide that we're gonna go into those places with family or we're gonna maybe do some new ministry God has called us to, whether that's a homeless thing or whether that's even adoption or whether that's overseas mission, when it originates with us and we think it's a good idea or whether you're like me and we think it's a good idea to preach Jonah and just yell at you for a little while, when it originates here, what happens is we find ourselves that we're operating from a place of performance, Approval, or maybe fear because it's all on me. It originates here and this is my thing and I've got to go and do this. And then what happens is you keep spinning your wheels and then you become burned out. But rather when mission begins with God, when mission originates with God, we can watch without fear, trusting that God is on mission and that God cares about the mission, then we can just watch his kingdom break out. We can't manufacture the kingdom. And so when we look at a place like Nineveh, where I've told you they're the last people you'd ever imagine in this book that would turn and love God, okay? They're violent. I told you how they were an empire with a mob mentality. They boasted in their violence. When we get uh, artifacts from Assyria, Nineveh was the capital city of Assyria, when we get artifacts from Assyria, it's not a beautiful poetry, it's relief works and pottery and paintings of people's heads on a stake, okay? These are the lost cause, the last cause people. So if Jonah's going on a mission that originates with himself, he's gonna die at worst, or he's gonna burn out and fail miserably, But when mission originates with God, when we partner with what God's up to, then we get to see that God's mercy extends and we just yield and let it go, okay? One of the ways that I've talked about in this church before and I was thinking about because I told you I was at the journey and in the journey there's a surfer, I want us to think about mission I want to think about mission tonight when we talk about how it originates from God and it's empowered by God and there's nothing that Jonah really did except yield to God and let God do what God wants to do which is be a merciful God on mission to rescue even the lost causes and the violent people. Okay? So I told you about this guy at The Journey, the surfer. And this is what I've talked about mission before. I really think that a lot of how God operates is like maybe a surfer who's sitting on his board out in the middle of the ocean, okay? And the waves kind of come and go, and what happens is there's about a dozen or more, all these surfers that have enough distance and breadth, uh, you know, a ways to where they're not on top of each other. And so what happens is the surfer is sitting there on his board, and the waves are coming, and then all of a sudden he looks, and he sees a wave that's coming, and there's something intuitive to how he's wired and what he's done. and There's something that says, it's this is it, and he has just the right moment and just the right window to hop up on his board and ride the wave. But he never made the wave. He never manufactured the wave. He didn't tell the wave when to come through, but he was present enough to know when it's time to hop up and participate, right? See, the thing is, we don't manufacture the kingdom of God, okay, and watch, the church is not the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God is the reign, and that reign of God is mediated through Jesus Christ, okay, who was empowered by the Spirit, who showed us what this kingdom that God was bringing looked like, and God, who said, Through Jesus, empowered by the Spirit, on mission, he's saying, turn from your kingdom, turn from your way, get on board with my kingdom, and this is my king, Jesus. And Jesus was vindicated because Jesus died on the cross. He defeated death, hell, Satan, the grave, all of it. He defeated God's enemies, and he broke open the door for life in God's kingdom. And so by the resurrection, He was vindicated and God said, this is my king and now the good news, the gospel that I reminded you all of last week is that Jesus reigns and he is inviting all the world into his gracious rule. And so the church, which is not the kingdom, the church is there to alert the world, Nineveh or your family or otherwise, to the fact that God's gracious, loving reign is even for them. So last week, we talked about Jonah's role in participating in what God was up to, and we split this scene up. And we split this scene up because we talked about Jonah and this call and mission and all this. But Jonah would have failed miserably if he wasn't a participator in what God originates. And we always need to remember this vision that I told you about, we always need to remember that this God is love, and he is ready to extend mercy, even to the most unlikely folks. Let's look at verse 5 in chapter 3, and let's see this God. We talked about Jonah and his role in yielding to God last week. Tonight we're going to talk about Nineveh's repentance. So we've been on this hinge, and now we've got a new Jonah who's been mercifully rescued, and watch how God is going to mercifully rescue Nineveh. Let's look in verse 5. Jonah preaches, and the Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. There's a blowout at the sackcloth store, and everybody went and got sackcloth. Now first, you need to understand, I talked about the size of the city of Nineveh, which is a massive city It was seven miles around, it was a huge wall, and it was a violent people. And Jonah, he says it's going to be a three-day job, a three-day journey through, and Jonah goes how many days through? To street corner to street corner saying, 40 more days. How many days does Jonah make it before verse 5 hits and the Ninevites believe God? One. Thank you, Maria. One. Jonah goes from street corner to street corner and the gist of his message is essentially like we talked about last week, repent, repent. Because God's reign is breaking in, and you are not on board. So Jonah gets through one third, one day. This is kingdom of God stuff, okay? This is what happens when you ride the wave. Because Jonah was disobedient, but now we've got a new Jonah who's repented himself, and he's on board, and we've got one day, and all of the Ninevites believed God. How many Ninevites? At least 120,000, which is huge for that time period, Okay? as huge for a walled city. There's some discrepancy, but let's say 120,000 people in mass after one day Jonah goes and says 40 more days and you're done. And so it looks like bad news travels really really fast. So then what happens? They put on sackcloth. Now there's three things in that time period. What is this sackcloth about? Are you thinking of a potato sack? That's what I'm imagining. The sackcloth store says everything must go because we've got to get on board and repent. So day one, everybody puts on sackcloth. There's three ways that people showed their penitence, their repentance, okay? And if you hear that you've got 40 days or bad things are gonna happen, you're gonna do whatever you can. So you take off your clothes and you put on sackcloth. That's one way. And it's a way of basically saying, I'm just giving up everything that's a comfort to me. Then they would put on ashes, you think of Job, who sat in ashes, you know? And maybe you're, you're hearing, you know, the potato sack, and you're hearing, you know, ashes and dust. I mean, basically, it's just a sign that, you know, you're just, you're just in the dirt, you're low, you're, you're contrite, you're humble. And then the third thing that they would do is pray, okay? Because if God is the one that's saying, this is going to happen, you're going to get overturned, you're going to get flipped over, they're going to put on sackcloth. But right here, it just says they're going to have sackcloth. So, what you need to see is that these violent, lost people who hear Jonah, kingdom of God breaks out, they respond the way that God's people ought to respond. I mentioned Job, praying, repenting, sackcloth ashes. Times in the past where generations of Israelites, God's people do this. They're responding Israel's way. This isn't the the first time that this has happened. Do you remember another time when outsiders turned from their gods to Israel's God and then responded Israel's way? Do you know? Thank you, sailors. We had these sailors that were far away. Look at chapter one, verse 16. The men greatly feared the Lord, okay? So we've got outsiders on the boat with the sailors and they fear the Lord because this storm We've got Ninevites who fear the Lord because they've got 40 days. God has got through to them. And then we see in one sixteen they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows to him. This is gratitude, gratefulness. They respond to Israel's God and they respond Israel's way. The narrator of Jonah, the writer of Jonah, wants us to jump right back to the Ninevites And just as surprising it was that all these sailors who were saying, "Hey, this God and this God and this God and this God from my country, help me," just as surprising as it is after the storm for them to turn to Israel's God and respond to Israel's way, the narrator wants us to at this point. If we thought that was crazy, this is crazier. That was a handful of sailors. We've got one hundred twenty thousand Ninevites one day turning to Israel's God and humbling themselves. And if that's not crazy enough, because you don't know any Ninevites, oftentimes I talk about those lost causes in our life. The Israelites could have never imagined the Assyrian people, the Ninevites in the capital city, turning to Yahweh. And we just read it because, man, that's a cool thing that God did. But here's the deal, can we imagine the most ridiculous outsiders in our circle kneeling before God, maybe not in sackcloth, but in humility, saying, I've led my life one way, God, I want your life. If you cannot imagine that, then I would encourage you to prayerfully in your mind, if you don't see it at the altar of this or any church, See that loved one, see that co-worker, see that person who sinned so greatly against you knelt down at the foot of the cross. If we would pray that way, maybe we can start to see when Jesus says to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you, bless those who persecute you. We don't want to do that because we cannot imagine The way they live their lives now, I could never see this person knelt down or sitting in our church with his hands outstretched. What a hypocrite, that person. But God, would we begin to pray this way, to see it, to give a substance to it? And not only would we be changing our hearts in the process, God, maybe, just maybe, we're riding a wave of you. And maybe, just maybe, When we encounter that person, we no longer see them with that resentment, that frustration, that sense of hopelessness and lost cause. Maybe, just maybe, God, we would have a moment where we see them and maybe there's an opportunity there. Maybe there's a wave to ride, okay? But if we can't see it, we can't do it, period, okay? That's how everything is. You can't see it. You can't do it. But God, would we pray for even the outsiders? The hearers of this book, they get to chapter 3, verse 5, and they say, The Ninevites? Are you serious? Yeah, right. After one day. So here's what happens. Look at verse 6. Bad news traveled fast, I told you. He's only one day through this massive city. Let's say he's only made it in, you know, just the first little section. Go to street corners and then brr, telephone, word travels. Verse 6, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh. This is strange because Nineveh is a city, but let's just say, hey, the king of Nineveh. Hang on to that king. This king rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Here's what's happening. Do you see the movement here? Do you see not only is it shocking for 120,000 people to turn, but here's a king who, watch, takes off the robes and puts on sackcloth. He gets down from, he stood up, right, from his throne, and he sits down in the ashes. I think this is an intentional thing where the king of a violent people gets news, and he says, here, Yahweh, here's the throne. This is incredible. What king stands up in in humility and fear and trust that this God can actually do what this guy Jonah says, and he just got word from it? What humility? Here, Yahweh, to the God that he can't see, from the people that he has attacked and kings before him have threatened as they push that border further and further west and this king gets down and humbles himself and he not only does that he's going to say hey here's what you need to do he issues a proclamation throughout the whole city So in verse five, there was a fast proclaimed and they all put on sackcloth. Well, watch, there's gonna be five things that this thing covers, okay? And we're gonna work through the first four and then we're gonna close and kind of wrap up verse nine and 10. But there's five things that he does. We're gonna look at the first four now. He's gonna ramp up that fast. He's gonna ramp up that sackcloth. That sackcloth store that had the blowout sale better get a new shipment in, dude, because watch what he's doing. By the decree of the king and his nobles, verse seven, do not let people or animals Herds or flocks taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. If you thought the fast in verse 5 was crazy, 120,000 people, I'm going to say, don't just stop eating. Why don't you stop drinking? And Jonah said, how many days? 40. We know Jesus made it 40, but we know Jesus was pretty rough day 40. So the king says, let's ramp this thing up. We've got to kick it into overdrive. And watch what he says too. This is for people and animals, not eating or drinking. He's not finished with the animals who are starving, who are dying. The king is telling his people, just go ahead and forget our economy. Forget our livestock. We have got bigger fish to fry. How many of us in our culture? An edict comes down. Forget your safety nets, we have got bigger fish to fry. Forget your cars, your assets, your house, we have got to get right with this God. He ramps it up even more. They're not eating, they're not drinking, verse 8. But let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Make sackcloth for the cows and goats. Are you kidding me? You can laugh at this. Because the king is panicked, but the king knows something. He knows that the gods that he worshiped, that he can make and see, these gods I talked about last week, he knows that this God he can't see from these people, from this one man Jonah, he knows that this God might do something about it. So he's going to hedge his bets. Animals ramped up, boom. So he's got all these right things, right? You see how they're responding Israel's way, okay? You've got the fasting, they're they're forsaking this, and they've got the sackcloth, so they're showing it with their bodies, but he doesn't stop there and look what he does. Let everyone call urgently on who? God, let that say the true God. Don't go like those sailors did, remember in chapter one, and first start running to this God or that God or the other God. I think this God means business. But let's not just look the part. Let's not just let our animals look the part. We have got to call urgently on God. 120,000, maybe a wave will come of his mercy and we'll get to hop in and be a part of this. So verse 5, they repent. There's a fast. They believed God. That motivates them to show this with their bodies, but then it's got to work its way into the heart because God, even with his own people, Israel says, look, man, he says in places like Joel, he says, don't just rend your clothes. Don't just make it look like you're repenting. Don't just tear your shirt off and put on sackcloth. Rend your hearts. He says, rend your hearts. Turn to me. That's what I care about. He tells Israel, don't just give me sacrifices. I desire mercy, not just sacrifice. I don't want your festivals and parties. And what he says to us, those of us marching along like Ninevites, don't just feel crummy about your sin. I've talked to so many people. I'm this person. I lived in my life. This is why I mentioned the journey earlier. This is why the journey was so foundational for me. Here's how I dealt with my sin, okay? Rather than rend my heart, I want to say, man, I messed up again. Mm, I feel so bad. Man, that stinks. God. I feel really, really, really bad. And maybe if I feel really, really, really bad and beat myself up and beat myself up and beat myself up, maybe I won't feel so bad and and I can just keep on going. Maybe I can go to church and hear a sermon that's nice about your love and I can just maybe not feel so bad and just kind of keep on going and keep perpetuating. Maybe I can put on all the right things and put on the smiling face and then tell my friend, yeah, man, I had a struggle this week. And maybe I can just say that You know, and maybe I can say, yeah, um, you know, we had a really difficult time with this person and I was really angry and, you know, um, I don't really think I can forgive them. Or maybe I can forgive them, but I don't want to forget. And maybe you can play all the right games and do all these things. And what God is saying is, man, it's got to sink deep because I can see right through your sackcloth, friend. And so the thing is this, this king who's put clothes on animals at least understands that something has got to originate here and say, look, we've got to call on God because God is the one that's going to bring judgment and God is the only one that can relent and stop. So let's ask him, call him, stop. And so if you're in that place where you're rending your, your shirts and not your hearts and you're feeling bad and you're feeling guilty and you're beating yourself up, don't live the way I lived for 10 plus years crying at youth camps at 16 and then at 26 getting into shame spirals frustrated God, I serve you I kind of think you're neat but I don't love you Because I don't think you love me, because I think you hate me, because I keep being angry and impatient, I keep not seeking you, I keep struggling with lust and these indwelling sins, so let me just come over here and hide, okay, and let me rend my clothes and do all the right things, and I never called urgently on God, because we don't call urgently on God, because we think that God doesn't want to hear from us. We think that God is not with us. And so this is why in this church we want to tell you every time, like I've told you even with Jonah, at every point and every step you take away, turn one step, he's right there pursuing you. He's right there with you. Jesus wants to embrace you in the darkest moment when you don't want to embrace him. But if we would call urgently, call urgently, even Jonah who deliberately runs, who deliberately hates the Ninevites, who does not want God to save the Ninevites. That's what we're gonna talk about in the next chapter. Even Jonah who blows it. God rescues from the pits of despair and death. And the real miracle was not just the fish, remember. The real miracle was even in the pit and in Jonah's darkest moment. When we call urgently on God, just like this king, just like Jonah, when we call urgently on God, the miracle is that he hears us in heaven from our deepest hell but he's not even so far in heaven like I just showed with my hands. He's actually in the deepest pits of your hell. But you don't think so because you're unclean and you're mad and all you wanna do is feel bad about it. But the biblical way is to call urgently on God and repent, turn. In verses eight through 10, the word repent is used four times. Twice from the Ninevites, twice from God. What do I mean by that? Let's keep looking. After they're doing all this show, they're going to call urgently on God and here's how they rend their hearts. Here's how they repent, that word I'm talking about. Let them give up their evil ways. See, the thing is, we can keep feeling sorry and bad because we keep thinking that our sin doesn't affect anything in the world around us we can keep feeling sorry and we can keep feeling bad because we think it doesn't manifest in action and what happens is from out, out of those places of darkness Jesus wants to enter in and he wants you to 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 not just change your mind to change your heart but to change your action right we talk about this in this church repentance Okay? We say a change of mind that leads to a change of action. That wasn't just some neat thing we coined. The Greek word says meta uh, noia. No, uh, oh man, I should have done this. Metanosis, meta-noia, meta-change. Noia. Thinking. Mind. Change it. When you change that, it manifests out, it works itself out into change of actions. When Zacchaeus, tax collectors, when they came to Jesus, they didn't just say, Jesus, I love you, be my savior. They said, I gotta pay back everything I stole from people, man. So these Ninevites knew that it's not just doing all the things on the outside, they've got to call on God and they've got to give up their evil ways, and not only that, but the very heart, the very darkest place, the very thing that was their calling card, they've got to give up their violence. And the violence was what got them to be such a massive empire. But the violence is what also rose up to God and was an affront an assault to the merciful God on mission to save his good world. Way back, the whole reason this thing started was because their violence, their wickedness rose up to Yahweh and violence in the empire, in Assyria, is always an affront to God's people and creation he loves. And God is patient and slow to anger, but God will not abide it forever. So God is about life. And God is about in Ezekiel 18 he doesn't rejoice in in the death but he wishes that everybody would repent and come to life. He says that in the context of even his own people. He's saying you're headed to death. You're headed to death. You're headed to death. Look at that whole section in Ezekiel 18. He doesn't desire the death the wicked but he can't abide the death of the oppressed and innocent that are destroyed and lorded over by the demonic, hellish oppression that people make on earth. So when we talk about justice, when we talk about judgment, we think that God is scary and bad. But the patient and merciful God, what he's doing with judgment or justice even imagine in our courtroom scene when Judge Judy slams her gavel. What she's trying to do and what God is always up to in the most perfect and infinite way is restoring balance. Read the Psalms. Read Justice in the Psalms. He wants those people who have been violated and violent against because violence is a, a, this divine way of thinking that I can take your life that's been given to you by God. I can infringe upon your life. God's judgment and justice when it covers the whole earth like the waters cover the sea will be a place where the poor people who live on less than a dollar a day and don't have water, and when their supplies come in from aid organizations, the people and men surround it with AK-47s and say, back off. What happens is God is working to restore that balance, to set things right, He judges, like Psalm 146, the widows and the oppressed. He judges. What he's doing is saying, look, in God's kingdom, when it breaks in, violence has to go, and I've got to restore life. This is judgment. This is justice. Assyria, Nineveh, has 40 more days. Because those who live by the sword will die by the sword. Watch, when Israel gets judged... What happens is nations like Assyria will come and will be their undoing. And God, what he does in that moment, because he's been patient and he's been pleading with these people, what happens is when judgment comes, he says, look, you have come so far to a point, way back in our covenant, I said, choose life, choose life, choose life, but you persist on choosing death. So he removes this and then in sweeps nations like Assyria, in sweeps nations like Babylon. But judgment, I want you to not lose this here, is this idea of balance. So the Ninevites had to give up their deepest and darkest infringements on the good creation and world that God is rescuing and trying to be on mission toward. So they got to really buckle down and do this. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. This king knew why this was coming because surely their wickedness had come up before me. This was kind of a dark time for Assyria anyway. So perhaps they were more apt to go God's way. But here's where we get a little insight into the king's thinking process. He's done all the right things. He's told his people to pray and step it up. And listen to what he says. This humble king who has got down from his throne, desperate. He says in verse 9, Who knows? God may yet relent. Even with our darkness and our mess, who knows? God may yet relent. And with compassion, Turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. They are fully convinced, he is fully convinced of God's fierce anger and power to do this thing, to let them be swept off the map. But he is not, listen, he is not yet certain of God's compassion, he is not certain of God's mercy. He's certain of God's power. He's not certain of His mercy. Who knows? I told you about how I wanted to run from God. I think I identify with the King here because for me, when my wickedness would rise up to God, here's what I would do. I was so certain He was out to get me. I wasn't certain of His grace and a posture of grace that wants to embrace me, not send me out. So this guy sounds just like I talked about the sailors earlier, who else does he sound like? Who knows? Does that ring any bells? Who knows? Look, in chapter one again, we've got a king, now we've got a captain. Look at verse six of chapter one. Get up and call on your God. The king just said, call urgently on your God, then he says, maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. Watch, boom, flip back to three nine. Who knows? God may be, may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. He knows God's not a genie, but he's calling out and hoping that God is compassionate. So here's the deal. Here's what God does. We talked about the four things that he said and these responses. Then the fifth thing was this hope, really, this hope. Verse 10 When God saw what they did, and don't miss this, how they turned from their evil ways, he relented. They repented, he relented. That word relent is almost always talked about in the Old Testament. Almost always that word is about God. So when we think of repentance, and I've been talking about repentance, we think it's like going from a a really bad thing and then turning to a really good thing. That's not the case. I told you change of mind, change of action. When we're talking about relenting, It is a conscious choice to not do that action, okay? So when God relents, he was going to do some action. They were going to be overthrown, and then God sees them, and he relents. God stops, slams the brakes. This is a time where we think a lot of times that prophecy and like when Jonah says 40 more days, we want to think that it's set in stone, that it's unconditional, that it's going to happen, that they had no hope. They were done. And then God relents. He changes his action. Changes mind, changes action. The Old Testament sees places like when Abraham, God was going to overturn, same word, Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham says, dude, what if there's 50? Wait, 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 what if there's 45? Okay, 45. What if there's 20? Okay, 20. What if there... And here God, because God does not desire death. God desires life. God brings life. If death was so good, why did Christ have to come and defeat it? God is about life and extending life. But so often we want to choose death. So I think about not just Abraham, but I think about Emma. I think about how I told her a couple weeks ago I made a mistake because it was just daddy home in the morning and it was after breakfast and we had had a little gathering and there were some mini brownies left that were sitting on top of the table and Emma walks in and it's like, you know, 8 o'clock or 7.30 and she says, oh, what are those? Can I have one? And so because Amy was away, I said, sure, sweet, beautiful girl, you can have whatever you want. And so I give her a brownie, and I always say, you can have one brownie. Now, Emma, how many brownies? And she goes, I'm not lying. She goes, three. I say, you can have one brownie. And she goes, two. I said, one brownie. And she says, okay, okay, okay. And she just eats it. And so I say, that's it. That's it. Done. No. But then later on in the day, in our efforts that are not so heroic most times, but we're trying to potty train Emma. And when Emma goes potty, Emma gets a treat. And usually that treat is a Skittle. I don't want to be too crass, but let me tell you, this day, I wanted, she made a brownie. <laughs> and she said, I'm, she, she says, I want a brownie. And here I was, so certain that that was it. And then, hey, I see what you've done. <laughs> you got that? You like that? I knew what I was doing. Let me just move past this part, okay, and get back to Jesus. And she gets her brownie. And here's why. Because God is about life. And when God judges, we always have to keep in our minds, we always have to keep a vision of the God on mission, and this God is Love. So when God is judging, he is loving in his judgment. When God is blessing, he's loving in his blessing. We've got to always start there. We've got to end there. He's always willing to act on his mercy. But what prompted it? He saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, and he relented. He's not a genie. The king was right when he said, who knows? But the God who is merciful and is love More, I always, always wants to act from a posture of embrace before it's too late. So he relents and he did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. So the trick is that there's no evidence here or in Assyrian history, I told you that this was a weak point in Assyria. Jonah, son of Amittai, was around in like 780 BC, so the 700s mid, and you know, early 700s, and you know, because BC, and, and at this time, Assyria, who is a major world power, a violent empire, they 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 did this. But here's this trick: in 722 BC, hang with me. In 722 B.C., Assyria will be a judgment on God's people Israel, whom God was patient and wanting to embrace, wanting to embrace, wanting to embrace. Jonah was from the north in Israel. Israel was, at this part in history, there was a northern kingdom called Israel, ten tribes, and there was a southern kingdom called Judah, two tribes. And what happens in 722, so a generation, here's where I'm getting down to it. A generation removed from this crying out to God, repentance and God relenting, a generation removed from that, Assyria went back to their violent ways. And they're a judgment and they wipe Israel away. And then later, the people that survived that onslaught from Assyria, when Assyria gets judged, Nineveh gets judged years after that in the 600s. Even God's people will be judged again by Babylon. You know, don't get lost in history. What I want you to hear is this. These people turned, they repented. The scriptures say 120,000, the writer of Jonah says. But the deal is that God has got a posture of mercy and embrace. But we also have to have a posture of mercy of embrace to Him. Because however well Seth and Mel parent and love Clark, each generation, each person has a choice to follow Him. But they will always find God who is love and who is mercy. So hear this. Even when you turn, even if you're a generation removed and you're back to your ways, know that if you're a citizen of His kingdom, Keep turning to Him. Keep turning to Him. and He will embrace you. He will embrace you. He will embrace you. What I want to do is pray. And I'm going to pray a prayer from the Book of Common Prayer, which is used in the Episcopalian, Anglican traditions. They've got a bunch of prayers called colics and other prayers for specific occasions. And this prayer that I want us to sit with before we come to the table is called For the Mission of the Church. This is a prayer for the mission of the church. It's talking about nations. So as we pray and as we take the body that was broken for us and the blood that was shed for us to forgive us, to find life in His kingdom. Perhaps He's calling us to repent from those things that are just leading to death. Perhaps He's calling us to pray for violent nations and people that look like enemies. Perhaps He's inviting us to imagine the Ninevites in our life who we would never see, we'd think, in this place. But we close with this prayer for the mission of the church. We pray to the God who is merciful and on mission. Hear these words as we close. O oh God, you have made of one blood all the peoples of the earth, And sent your blessed Son to preach peace to those who are far off and to those who are near. Grant that people everywhere may seek after you and find you. Bring the nations into your fold. Pour out your Spirit upon all flesh and hasten the coming of your kingdom. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.